Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday. We usually have Tim Miller on, but Tim Miller is out pushing his New York Times best-selling books. Speaking of New York Times best-selling books, uh, we're joined today by Jonathan Martin, senior political correspondent for the New York Times, a political analyst for CNN, and co-author of the recently published This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Hell of a week, Jonathan. I mean, damn. It really was. It really was. You know, Charlie, I, uh, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post in the summer of 2006, uh, which is, may as well be the ice age in our yes, current politics. Mists of time. Um, but it was a fun piece, though, talking about how there's this myth in Washington that August is somehow a dead month, that nothing ever <laughs> happens in August, and that everybody's at the beach in August, and like we're all like Parisians going to the Riviera. That is like historically so uh, untrue, man. Like there's an amazing political history of consequential, even seismic events taking place in August. And here we go again. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, re- I remember one of the, my favorite history books was Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August. Exactly. I mean, stuff happens in, 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 in August. Exactly. All right. So I have a couple of things. Nixon that I just resigned in August. It goes on uh, yeah. and on. Right. Right. Well, I, a couple of things I just need to get off my chest before we, we dive into the news of the day. And of course, with, with all the caveats that you and I are having this discussion at 10 o'clock uh, Eastern time, although neither of us are in that time zone at the moment. And so by the time people listen to this, they may know a lot more about how nuclear Mar-a-Lago went, uh, what's going to happen with the search warrant and everything. But I keep saying that nothing should shock us anymore. N- not, you know, because I mean, after what we've been through over the last six years, I have to say, though, last night on Fox News, Brian Kilmeade, sitting in for Tucker Carlson, actually aired a clearly, crudely photoshopped picture of the judge, the Jewish judge, who uh, signed off on the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, the photoshopped picture of imposing his head over Jeffrey Epstein's sitting on an airplane with Ghislaine, is that how you pronounce it, Ghislaine Maxwell? And she's she's leaning over, massaging his foot, and he's drinking something. And it's it's like, just when you think, like, there's no bottom, I mean, lying liars lie, what's new? It's like, here's a judge who is facing all of these threats, death threats. His synagogue had to cancel an event because there were so many threats. And Fox News actually posts a... Photoshop picture of this judge as Jeffrey Epstein on this, you know, with the Lolita Express. And it's like, you know, Jonathan, I mean, again, am I naive to be shocked by this now? Yes, of course I am. A little bit. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> well, right. Look, I mean, I, it, it's depressing and troubling, but what it's not to me is surprising. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's, um, it's the market forces. And that's what's driving them here and what's driving a lot of the right-wing media is they're giving the audience what they think the audience want but there's not any they, thought they given to right. res- there's not any thought given to responsibility or propriety here let alone public safety um, when you do that and what I mean we're in an environment that's a tinderbox now. Uh, you have somebody who shows up at the FBI field office in Cincinnati with body armor and gets in a sort of like, you know, Wild West style, uh, you know, shootout in a cornfield outside Cincinnati and, and eventually dies at the hands of law enforcement. I just don't know how that kind of thing can take place and there not be reflection uh, on the part of everybody in the press. 
Yeah, I'm reading the headline here. Armed man who tried to breach FBI office, uh, Ohio office, shot dead by police. Confrontation comes as officials warn of increase in threats against federal agents after Mar-a-Lago raid. Right. I was struck, by the way, by all of the Republicans that tweeted out, uh, you know, their their outrage about this whole incident and everything. Actually, they're observing complete silence about it. But once again, it should be obvious, if it has not been obvious for a long time now, that toxic ideas have tragic consequences. Yeah. And and yet, despite this, as you describe it, a, a tinderbox, everybody had ramped up, well, at least until uh, yesterday afternoon. So let's talk about this. And again, with the caveat yeah. that this is 10 o'clock Eastern time uh, yeah. on Friday morning, we'll be smarter later. So what's going on with Merrick Garland? Because I'm thinking that the Orange God King did not see that coming, that Garland comes out and says, all right, we're ready to uh, release the, the, uh, the, the search warrant. He has a you know, full-throated defense of the FBI. And I, I mean, my take on this was that uh, Donald Trump was kind of counting on the asymmetry, the information asymmetry, where he could go out and demagogue and raise money and stir things up and the Department of Justice would you know, keep its head down. And so Merrick Garland is basically saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm calling your bluff. So it is put up or shut up Friday, isn't it, Jonathan? Yeah, no, it sure is. Uh, and you know, Trump put out a statement late Thursday night saying that, you know, he wants all the information released. Sure now, we'll see what that ultimately means. I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in that until we actually see him turn over documents or we see him stay out of court trying to block the release of documents. Mm-hmm. I think that remains to be seen. But look, no, I mean, clearly Garland wants to be apolitical. He wants to keep this out of the court of public opinion. And I think that was the hope. Obviously, the day of the raid and the day after is we just don't talk about ongoing investigations. I think it became clear yesterday that that wasn't an option and that you Mm -hmm. had to address the public. Otherwise, you were letting all these uh, conspiracy theories at worst or at best, you know, fair and responsible questions about what they were up to sort of fill in the vacuum. So I think that's why he acted. I think it was a recognition, Charlie, that you know even the most apolitical of attorney generals, this kind of book, you know, bookish former judge, uh, you still have to ha- do something to fill uh, the gap and sort of be responsible to the public. Um, I think that was tough for him to do. You saw that statement he made was so short and so clipped. He's not comfortable sort mm-hmm. of engaging in the public fray uh, in this fashion. That's obviously not who he is. Um, but I just don't think they had a choice given uh, the information flow and the speculation and, frankly, the conspiracy monitoring that was taking place uh, the last couple of days. So what do we know now about what the FBI was looking for and what they found? I mean, I've been saying all week we, we don't know what they were looking for and we don't know what they have found. The reporting over the last, um, what was it, 12 hours, 18 hours yeah. uh, has been yeah. rather extraordinary. I mean, my default setting is like, don't get your hopes up. Uh, it, it, it may turn out to be disappointing. But I mean, these headlines right now about nuclear documents, what, what do we know? And what do we not know? Do well, think? this is why uh, on Monday night I was so puzzled, Charlie, why you know, even kind of non-Trumpy Republicans were going out uh, on a limb without knowing what exactly the facts yeah. were in this case. I just for the life of me couldn't understand, um, you, you know, uh, 
why you wouldn't just hang back and sort yeah. of let this emerge because you, it's Donald Trump. You just never know what underlying facts are. So to answer your question, look, I think the last 12 hours we've seen for the first time some uh, significant reporting uh, into what exactly uh was down at Mar-a-Lago that prompted this raid. I think the Washington Post reported and put a pretty large headline on the front page of their paper today that the material was related to nuclear programs. My paper reported (laughs) that it was highly classified, you know, even beyond top secret, and that that's what prompted this. And that there was a fear that if this got in the wrong hands, it could compromise national security. I think that does start to fill the puzzle in in terms of why they would go to these extraordinary lengths, Charlie, uh, right. the material. I was puzzled by, by two things on Monday night. Number one, exactly what you said there. I, in fact, I, I was so naive, uh, once again, uh, on Monday night. I was on one of the cable shows and was asked, well, how will Republicans react to that? And I said, well, of course, you know, the you know, MAGA world will react with spittle-flecked outrage yeah, and fury, right. but most Republicans will be smart enough to observe strategic silence. Well, wrong about that because they wow. all jumped in. That that was surprising that uniformly they did, including Kevin McCarthy, and I want to talk about him in a moment. Yeah. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who actually threatened the Department of Justice, you know, with investigation. But yeah. the other thing, you know, the big question mark is, okay, it must have been a big freaking deal for the Justice Department to have gone so far as to have a, an FBI raid of the president's house. So what could they possibly have been looking for? And, you know, there's all this speculation. Well, you know, it's, you know, government pieces of paper that they hadn't returned. And, you know, was this disproportionate? You know, did, did Merrick Garland basically crap the bed by, by, by overplaying his hand? Uh, so we will find out because, you know, on the scale of like, you know, BFDs, nuclear stuff is at the top of the list, right? I mean, I was trying to think just right. theoretically, what could be bigger than that? Right? Right. I mean, you know, so that's right. No, I mean, I look, I think um, that was the concern among a lot of anti-Trump Republicans and, frankly, Charlie, a lot of Democrats of, oh, yeah, geez, you know, Garland is apolitical, but this guy's got to have some political intent. He wouldn't have raided Mar-a-Lago just to retrieve, you know, like some some generic staff correspondence between Trump and Boris Johnson, would he? Right. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that was just below the surface of hope this guy's got it right. Uh, you, you heard from a lot of the kind of anti-Trump uh, forces. And I think this goes to the heart of what I was been uh, almost amused by, which is this rhetoric from people who don't follow politics that closely or are just partisans who aren't totally on the level who were saying that, you know, Merrick Garland is sort of leading this politicized Department of Justice, and he's a partisan warrior out for a scalp, and Biden's Biden's Doberman, who's trying to weaken Trump. It's like, if you follow politics in Washington at all the last 14 months, you know that the the criticism of Garland is precisely the opposite. It's it's from Democrats and, frankly, from some folks in Congress and even the Biden administration who grumble that he's not aggressive enough right, right. when it comes to uh, holding Trump accountable and pursuing January 6th related issues. And then all of a sudden to hear folks on the other side of the spectrum say that he's this sort of um, a latter-day Roy Cohn-type figure, it was just really hard to swear. 
So that, that's why I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is going on with Merrick Garland, because he came into office, you know, and, and he came into office, I, I think, with this idea that he was going to restore the traditions of the Justice Department, right? Make it very, very clear how, you know, apolitical it was. All of his instincts would go in that direction. And of course, that led to the anxiety you're talking about, that that perhaps he was too milquetoast, that, that there was, that he was the wrong man for the, the job because he wasn't going to be as aggressive as he needed to be. So as we sit here now in, in, in mid-August, he has raided Donald Trump's house. They are seizing the phones of Republican congressmen. Right. We have grand jury investigations. The pace of the Department of Justice investigations seem to be picking up. And I wonder whether or not you're, you're seeing a slow, gradual education of Merrick Garland, transformation of Merrick Garland, who's basically saying, okay, this is the hand I have yeah. been dealt. This is not what I wanted to be, but this is the business I'm in now. And Donald, don't fuck with me or underestimate me because I'm going to do this. Well, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I think it could be just the fact that he was pursuing an investigation all along, but was just doing it quietly and determined to avoid leaks. And that now... The investigation is coming to the surface, but it was happening all along. He's just not somebody that was sort of eager for that to be known precisely because of the reaction that this has prompted this week. Look, I mean, I know for a fact that the people in that department are extremely careful about not seeming political, about, you know, crossing every T, dotting every I, because they don't want to trigger the kind of reaction that we've seen this week. And they want to sort of, you know, portray themselves as paragons of integrity and not political at all. And obviously that's guided by sort of Garland's uh, instincts. And that has been their approach. But it's hard to stay out of politics when <laughs> you send agents into the former president's home. I mean, that, okay, like that's that. But there's there's no more keeping this investigation under the surface. You know, that's, the, <laughs> no, that's right. you know, I think at that, at that point, I'm sure Garland wanted to sort of keep business as usual, but that only lasted two days. I mean, I, I, I think yesterday's uh, announcement by, by Garland was just such a concession that, yes. I cannot remain in this monastery. I've got to come out and engage right. the public, you know? Well, I mean, one of my concerns was that you're seeing the same sort of pattern that we saw in the Mueller investigation. We had the asymmetry of Robert Mueller, who was bringing basically a fountain pen to a gunfight um, right. and, and was not able to deal with the kind of information political warfare that Donald Trump excels at and right. and and. and was perhaps had too much faith in institutions, had too much faith in in the old way of doing things, and that Merrick Garland seemed to come out of the same cloth. And totally. clearly, I, I think yesterday was a recognition that that he can't do that. So I, I am fascinated to get your take on the Republican reaction. So let's talk about Kevin McCarthy. What do you think is going on in Kevin McCarthy's mind right now? Look, I was not surprised at all by the reaction of McCarthy and the reaction of McConnell this week because it reflects their their a their impulses and b their political uh, assumptions. And we cover this a great deal in the book. Look, McCarthy yeah. 
is a Trump lieutenant. He knows that Trump holds the keys to the kingdom for him because the House caucus is so Trumpy. And he wants to keep Trump on his good side, which is why he was back at Mar-a-Lago less than a month after January 6th, trying to sort of heal that relationship. And so it's not a surprise at all that McCarthy, you know, within hours of this Mar-a-Lago raid being disclosed, is not calling for accountability on the person whose house is being raided, but is calling for accountability on the law enforcement uh, officer's led by Merrick Garland, uh, who are pursuing the investigation, that is Kevin McCarthy. Okay, He, he, he is never going to get crosswise with what he thinks his members want and his members like Trump, period, end of story. Yeah. Uh, McConnell, Charlie, is- Wait, a wait, 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 before we get into McCarthy. But if you look in McCarthy's eyes, I'm thinking, think of the movie where you, know, you become somebody else, but you, your soul is still there somewhere, like deep down and shriveled you know, at yeah. the bottom of the well. Is there still a Kevin McCarthy who we we saw for like five minutes after January 6th? You had you had the tapes of him, you know, talking about it. And then, of course, he lied about what he said. And then you, Jonathan, in one of the great moments, political moments, he said, well, okay, here's the receipts. Here's, you know, the fact that the Kevin McCarthy lied about. So is there any bit of that McCarthy like down there in the cellar, crouching in the corner thinking, shit, this (laughs) No, so I think you know McCarthy's instinct, as we did, did capture on those tapes. Yeah. And by the way, the audio version of the book is really cool. If, oh. if folks out there have you know listened to books on Kindle or sort of CD or audio tape yeah. or what have you, we've interspersed all those audio tapes that we obtained from before and after January sixth within the text of the book itself. Oh. So for history junkies, it's it's kind of like the Nixon or the LBJ tapes. You can listen to the actual conversations damn. in between the text of the book. Yeah, it's really neat. Oh, damn. So, really yeah, look, I think McCarthy is a political animal. And I think when McCarthy thought for a brief minute after January 6th that Trump was damaged goods, it was going to drag down the party, then he was ready to move on Trump. When it became clear a week, 10 days later that, oh, actually, my party doesn't really care about January 6th. They still love Trump. Then he's back to Trump. I, look, I think... McCarthy's instincts are entirely guided by what makes sense for him politically in the short term. And by the short term, I mean like the next 10 minutes. Um, That's who he is. Look, if Donald Trump tomorrow, you know, suddenly fell out of favor with the Republican voters and therefore the House GOP conference, then Kevin McCarthy would happily move on from Trump. It's a political calculation. And with McConnell, it's also a political calculation. Calculation. McConnell's caucus is less Trumpy than McCarthy. McConnell has no regard for Trump. He doesn't think anything of him. And I think McConnell is sort of eager to move on from Trump, but he doesn't want to prolong this kind of public pissing match with Trump because he thinks that that's bad for the Republicans and bad for his chances to take back control of the Senate. Sure. So McConnell's approach is just, is just be quiet. And here we go, once again, uh, applying that that approach to the news of this week. What did McConnell do? He stayed quiet. Yep. He didn't say anything Monday night. He avoided questions Tuesday when he was touring the flood-ravaged parts of eastern Kentucky. And then finally, he put out a paper statement, was fairly restrained, but sort of calling on Garland to offer some insights as to the nature of the investigation. So I think, uh, Charlie, that th- this week has really sort of summed up the the different approaches of those two leaders when it comes to Trump. And also we're finding out now that uh, his wife, Elaine Chow, has uh, sat down at some point, sat down with the January 6th committee. 
Yeah, I mean, clearly the January 6th committee is moving to get every possible participant they can to testify. And look, I think they dealt with a lot of resistance that has slowly melted away over the course of these public hearings. And there's more people who are willing to speak now, including McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, who, yes, was Secretary of Transportation under Trump and then, of course, resigned after January 6th. Interesting. Okay, so on the GOP reaction, leaving aside McCarthy and McConnell, what do you make of the sudden enthusiasm for defund the FBI, which strikes me as so bizarre on so many levels that we need to go into it. But one of the biggest cudgels that Republicans have wielded against Democrats was the stupid idea of defunding the police, because, of course, we back the blue. We can't defund the police. And like the the head snapping pivot to. But wait, we want to defund the FBI. (laughs) What? Well, two things um, strike me there. I mean, one is the degree to which Republican lawmakers have become, uh, and not all of them, but a lot of them, have become so captive to an information silo that includes references and uh, attacks and sort of um, uh, even almost a sort of like language that is so unique to one element of their base it's not even their entire base and like it certainly isn't the general electorate and the idea that you're going to be rewarded by attacking federal law enforcement officers with the electorate at large just shows how a lot of these these members have become sort of so deeply sunk into um these ideological silos and i i don't understand like why they can't see that, that that makes little sense for the electorate at large. Some of them don't live with the electorate at large because they just reflect their their hardcore primary voters. But that's one thing. The other thing, Charlie, that jumps out at me is what a gift this could be for Democrats yeah. who, you know, besides inflation, their biggest challenge has been pushing back against the, the, the question of defund the police and crime as an issue overall. And here, you know, Republicans are throwing in your lap a cudgel that you can wield against them when it comes to blunting that attack about being soft on crime. They're literally attacking law enforcement. And for the life of me, I just I can't understand why Democrats don't see uh, what a golden opportunity that is, especially after the attack on the FBI office in Cincinnati. My goodness, I mean, if you're a Democrat and you can't see the opportunity there, then you know turn in your your politician card, man. This may seem like a slight digression, but I just as we were having this conversation, I, I was flashing back to the mid 1990s. After the bombing uh, at Oklahoma, the, of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, and th- this was at a time when Bill Clinton's uh, popularity was was really at a low point, um, and he pivoted on that. And a lot of the right wing media was really put on the defensive as a result of that. You know, some of the criticism was unfair, but the point was made that this kind of rhetoric, this kind of politics of paranoia, could be deadly. And that really was a, a turning point, I think, in the mid-1990s. And you're right, you're absolutely right. If if they can't figure out a way to point out how reckless, how crazy, how seditious the Republicans have become, uh, that would be a lost opportunity. Do you get a sense, though? I, I, I always try to, and I'm sure you do as well, try to sort through the wish casting and the spin from the reality. I mean, no. and 
there's no question about it that this has been looking like it's going to be a Republican year. The midterms are not going well for Biden. Biden's numbers, you know, are low. However, there is a discernible mood shift in the last week. So has has the environment shifted? Is this real or is it just apparent? What do you Charlotte, think? I want to give it some more time. Yeah, and that, right. that, that, that may be a dodge, but no, I just right. I, I'm I'm not somebody That's who's covered a lot of campaigns. <laughs> Uh, I'm a lot more interested to see where these numbers are in mid-September than mid-August. Talk to me after Labor Day. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. happily come back on the pod. We'll we'll tell Tim Miller to go and sell some more books, and uh, I can come back on. Look, I just I really am curious as to how much this will hold up. But look, there's there's no question that Democrats always have a challenge with voter mobilization in off-year elections because they rely on a coalition that is more of a patchwork of people who aren't always super engaged um, with politics. And boy, uh, have they gotten a few issues to sort of mobilize their coalition. So, you know, you can see how Democrats could close the gap this time. I'm just not totally convinced yet that it's going to happen. And by the way, just real fast on that same tip, it's one of the great elements of politics today, and by great I mean striking or ironic, the reliance of the Democratic Party on Trump, it's incredible. Uh, obviously, the party loathes him, and many view him as sort of a, a threat to American democracy. But just from a raw political standpoint, Charlie, what would Democrats do without him? He, he unifies their party. He mobilizes their voters. He drives small-dollar fundraising. You know, the reliance, we're now on year seven, where he, he's been uh, an incredible gift. Think about it. You know, Donald Trump has handed over Democrats control of the House, Senate, and the presidency almost single-handedly. Yes, and we have been living in his world for seven years. Yeah. All right, so let's why no. we called the book, This Will Not Pass, Charlie. It's available now on Amazon.com <laughs> or your local bookstores. And the reason that we called it that is because we're still living this this uh, deeply polarized politics in this Trump-dominated politics. And I think there was some expectation after he lost in 20, okay, well, I, that's that. But my I goodness, thought so, but it, yeah. No, I was actually just telling you know my, my, my daughter who's visiting from France this morning. I said, you know what? I I think everyone had geared their lives and their their commentary and everything around get through 2020 and then you move into the post era, the post-Trump era, and things will will revert to something different, not go back to normal. Right. And here we just have like extra time. It's 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 like you know the soccer match from hell where you know you think the, the match is over and you know the game. And you have you have that bonus time that just goes on forever. OK, so, Jonathan, what I really wanted to talk to you about today, Liz Cheney, next Tuesday, she's going to lose in, in Wyoming. What's interesting about it is that most congressmen live and die and breathe and eat in order to get reelected. She is really it's like i continue to marvel she is a different political animal isn't she yeah look i think she is at peace with her choice to effectively sacrifice her her house seat for the pursuit of of donald trump and of of trying to hold him accountable and as she says keep him away from uh the oval office uh once more but no, it is different uh, than what we're used to seeing, which is politicians making the accommodations they need to survive. And I actually asked her, Charlie, I said, uh, when I interviewed her for this story, I said, 
you know, wouldn't you have been better to live to fight another day, yeah. you know, bite your tongue now and keep the platform so that you can sort of try to reform the party from within as a member of Congress? And she bristles at that and says that it was never an option for me. She could not bite her tongue. The threat of Trump is too much. Look, I think once she got on the January 6th committee and got into the information, I, I, I think that became, Charlie, her driving force uh, in public service. I think that is her entire focus, much more so than her reelection. And I believe that that committee is going to be active and engaged until the last possible minute in this Congress and will go as far as they can to um, – hold Trump accountable. The start of my story includes a comment that Liz Cheney made in July in a private meeting of the 1-6 committee in which she said, you know, we have done more than any other group of people to keep Trump away from the Oval Office. You know, we can't let, I'm paraphrasing. And I think that's what animates her today. So in your story, I think one of the more startling things was that her office is saying or implying or whatever, I don't know how strong it was, but that she's been all but driven out of this Trump-loving state in part because of death threats? Yeah, no, she's got a Capitol Police details and had it for almost a year now, full time. And, you know, she she is concerned. She does have these threats, and that has effectively stopped her from having a public schedule. She does not put out a schedule. She does, a, you know, a series of house parties that she does not advise that are invite-only that, by the way, are largely comprised of supporters. So she's kind of preaching to the converted uh, as is. But look, I that's real. But I think even if, it, if she didn't have those threats, I still think her focus would be more on the January 6th committee than it would be her re-election. I think that's where her time and focus is uh, right now. I had um, somebody told me, uh, that this person said that, that they were struck uh, just by how often Cheney's Zoom background uh, is her Northern right. Virginia home rather than her Wyoming home when she has these private Zooms with the members of the 1-6 committee. Uh, and by the way, that's testament to just how much those guys have been on Zooms together uh, on the 1-6 panel. That they now know who is where based on their Zoom background. But no, she is, uh, I think, uh, eager to chase Donald Trump as far as necessary to ensure he does not uh, return to the Oval Office. And I think she, she's fine sacrificing her seat. No, I mean, you, you can really tell, uh, you know, that, that, that she and her father um, are all out of fucks to give here. I mean, you, you, as you mentioned in your piece, the the only Wyoming Republican primary debate, she just said, basically told voters, vote for somebody else if you want a politician who would violate their oath of office. And then, you know, Dick Cheney cuts that ad, which, you know, calls Trump a, a coward, represents the greatest threat to America in the history of the republic. And this is in a state that that Donald Trump won by 70%, right? I mean, so she is doubling down on all of this stuff. So what is she going to do? I mean, you point out she's she does little to dissuade talk of a presidential yeah. run. I, I'm like, how did she think that would go? Yeah, and like, frankly, where did she run? Does she run as an independent or does she run in a Republican primary? Charlie, I don't think that she has thought through all these questions about her post congressional life. I, you know, my sense of her is that she's still undergoing this political awakening that I think is bigger than Trump. She made a really striking comment to me that she'd rather serve with, you know, these women like Mikey Sherrill, who was a Navy yeah. helicopter pilot, who are serious people with impressive backgrounds who care about policy, even though their ideology is different than some of the more cartoonish sort of bomb throwing figures in the Republican caucus. So like I 
I think Liz Cheney's experiencing kind of this political awakening here uh, that's bigger than Trump, much more so than she's sort of, you know, quietly and methodically plotting her post-congressional 501c3 that's going to, you know, be the shell group that takes down Trump or sets up her presidential run. I don't think she's gotten that far. Again, I think she's completely consumed by the 1-6 community yeah. using that platform uh, to do everything she can to get some kind of charges against Trump. Why do you think she's running for re-election as opposed to doing That's a yeah. good question, yeah. right? Why choose martyrdom when you could have just pulled out and not run at right, all right. and spent your time focusing on the 1-6 committee? And the answer to that, Charlie, is that she's a Cheney. I, I think she's <laughs> just somebody who does not want to quit. She doesn't want to give Trump the pleasure of saying he drove her out. She'd rather sort of meet her political fate and, you know, go down with the ship, get burned at the stake, pick your pick your metaphor. Um, but that's who she is. That's her political character. If you've ever spoken to her or sort of you know that she's a lot like her dad uh, in that sense, that's just who they are. And I'm not terribly surprised uh, at all. I will say the, this, though. I mean, it's it's quite the end to a remarkable 45-year run between father and daughter sure uh, in this state, which, by the way, it's the least populated state in America. And, you know, they had you know, a pretty remarkable run uh, between uh, Dick Cheney and now Liz Cheney, both of which, by the way, I should add for the political junkies out there, were once on track to be the leader uh, of the House. Dick Cheney, of course, mm-hmm. as the number two uh, to become Secretary of Defense, Charlie, if he had stayed, he would have been uh, likely the Newt Gingrich type figure or but he became Secretary of Defense and left before the GOP took back the House. And, of course, Liz Cheney became the third-ranking Republican one term into her congressional career and could have also had a similar arc. Uh, and instead, now both are not going to sort of reach that that pinnacle uh, and instead took very different turns in their, their careers away from the House, both of them achieving fame for very different reasons. See, your, your piece also reminded me of something that I had completely forgotten about. Uh, you wrote that a decade ago, Cheney had a contract to appear regularly on Fox News yeah, yeah. and would use her perch as a guest host for Sean Hannity. By the way, think about that for a moment. Yeah. Guest host for Sean Hannity to present her unswerving conservative yeah. views and savage former President Barack Obama and the Democrats. She does not express regrets about creating an atmosphere that led to Trump, but she did acknowledge that a reflexive partisanship that I've been guilty of and noted that January 6th demonstrated how dangerous that is. So this is part of this transformation is that she's kind of working through. Yeah, yeah, I call it more of an awakening, but absolutely that's what it is. She brought up Fox unprompted to me. So it's obviously on her mind. I think she knows now how unhealthy uh, this far-right ecosystem has been vis-a-vis the sort of rise of Trumpian politics and this detachment uh, from from the world that the rest of us live in. And she was pretty clear about that. And it's obviously starting to do some reflection. But yeah, it really does show just how much everything uh, in the conservative orbit has changed the last decade. You know, and people like that thought that American politics was basically being played out between the 40-yard lines, to borrow a football uh, term. And then it turns out that 
it wasn't. And she was left out in the cold because of that. And I think is now trying to find her way ahead uh, in a world that's very different than the one that she grew up in. And also the one, Charlie, that she lived in as an adult, um, whether working for her dad's administration or on Fox News. So next Tuesday is going to be one of those, again, uh, clarifying moments where uh, the Republican Party rejects Liz Cheney and perhaps sends Sarah Palin back to Congress. Uh, I haven't been following the Alaska politics. It's a little bit complicated there. But what do you think? Is is Sarah Palin going to win that uh, primary next Tuesday? She's in a pretty strong position. And I think... Those two races obviously speak to Trump's enduring role in the Republican Party, but they also say something else, and that is the Republican Party has a demand side issue as yeah. well. And by that, yeah. I mean a lot of their voters, this is what they want. I mean, yeah. their primary electorate wants this kind of populist, pugilistic yeah. politics that is much more about opposition than it is about a sort of set of small government policy beliefs. That's bigger than Trump. You know, Trump uh, tomorrow could fall into a sinkhole, and I think there would still be the, these issues. Oh, abs- absolutely. No, I, it is the followership problem. So the Republican House caucus next year is really going to be something. And imagine that, you know, the, the rivalry between uh, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Sarah Palin. Who can be the craziest? And Kevin McCarthy, you know, ought to be careful what he wishes for, right? Because, I mean, this is his great dream. To be, to be the speaker, it's going to be a shit show. John Boehner and Paul Ryan, your fellow Wisconsinite, mm-hmm. had a difficult time corralling a much less Trumpy conference uh, than what Kevin McCarthy is going to have on his hands next year. And, and I think that's going to give Kevin a lot of challenges. Um, <laughs> you know, we have Republicans, you know, in our book, this will not pass, who have real questions about whether McCarthy's going to be able to sort of lasso these folks uh, and sort of keep things straight. And by the way, if Democrats do keep control of the Senate and it's only the GOP that has control of the House, that's another opportunity for Democrats, for President Biden to try to isolate the, the sort of House Republicans that, you know, if that's the only chamber that the GOP controls, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, they can kind of portray them as as you know extremists potentially. There's no way that Kevin McCarthy will keep the crazies in a box. That that is the problem. Jonathan Martin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Jonathan Martin is political reporter, political correspondent for the New York Times, and co-author of the best-selling book "This Will Not Pass: Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future." Jonathan. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. Take care. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I will be back on Tuesday and we will do this all over again.